Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones, the Reverend Hunter, and I am joined, as always, by Brandon. It's The hard thing is I called you my trusty yellow lab last time, and I can't honestly think of anything better than that. Where do we go from there? I'm going to be forever known as a trusty yellow lab. That's cool. I'm going to have – no, I'll come up with something. I'm, I'm just sure a little – I'm sure there's some graphic designers out there that could have fun with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Brandon, how you been, man? It's been like uh it's it's funny because I thought, oh, this is just one long polar vortex here in Minnesota, but then I saw in the paper, no, there's actually two. One one ended yesterday and it got up to seven, and now we're getting hit by a second one, and I think the high today is gonna be negative one or something like that. Great. Yeah, no, I've I've been outside. I've practically had to carry my dog into the yard mm. to go to the bathroom because he's small and just freezes up instantly. Do you have a you have a dog bathroom in your backyard? Yeah, oh, I mean, just kidding, just kidding. I always think it's funny when the people tell. My wife does this too. She's like, I'm, "We need to let the dogs out to go to the bathroom." I'm like, "No, that's the point of letting them outside. They don't use the bathroom." In all fairness, <laughs> I use the word potty. I just wanted to okay. Throw okay. That out there. <laughs> Oh, euphemisms. They're all good. It's all good. Yeah. So you've been staying somewhat warm. Yeah. I mean, aside from when I'm doing these podcasts, like you, I'm in a I'm in a cold basement <laughs> running the yeah, I know. space heater intermittently. So I really do. My my our downstairs office is we have a split level house, and the office is on a con just on a concrete slab. And I'm like, oh, if I were building this house, I would have put heated, you know, heat in the floor. Uh, radiant heating in the floor, but no such luck. We are also Courtney. My daughter gave Courtney a snuggie that she wears most of the time uh, around the house. A big furry snuggie. So maybe I should get me one of them. It's not a bad route to go. Get a camo one. Why not? Or even a yeah, exactly. I do wear a camo mask. I've been masking in a camo mask, uh, showing my hunting uh, colors. Um, and I'm uh, I thawed some Oregon ducks that I'm going to put on the grill tonight. So I'm trying to, you know, eat the wild game and stay in the spirit of things, even though we're frozen blocks of ice. Enjoying the great outdoors. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, the guest on the Reverend Hunter this week is someone who really loves the great outdoors, Bob St. Pierre. And he's, uh, I mean, he's a guy who's super active in the outdoors. As you'll hear, it's a real passion for him. Um, not only is the, he the chief marketing and communications offer, uh, officer at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, which, as you'll hear in our conversation, is a, a, a nonprofit conservation organization of which I think very highly. I mean, I just can't think of one that's, that I, I hold in higher regard than PF. Um, but he's also the co-host of a weekly outdoors radio show, and he's also on the board of Sportsman for the Boundary Waters. So we have a lot to talk about. We have a great conversation. He's a passionate guy, and I, you know, I think people will will learn something too about uh, conservation and why it's so important, and, and the great work that Pheasants Forever is doing. Yeah, he's he's a great guy. It's, um, this I'm lucky enough to have been able to take part of two interviews, you know. And uh, yeah, he's he's just such a solid dude. He really really yeah. stands for a lot of positive things with uh, yeah. conservation. Yeah, he's also been on um, 
on our sister podcast, The Flush, and they talk probably more specifically about actual pheasant hunting than we do in in our conversation. So you can hear that, and you can always tune in to KFAN, uh, the KFAN Outdoors program, either you know, listen to it on the radio or listen to the podcast version of it. And that's a lot more ticks, uh, tip, tips and tactics and stuff like that for fishing and hunting. Uh, but of course, this podcast, we try to talk about maybe a little bit deeper stuff, plus, of course, baseball. So we got a lot <laughs> going on. And uh, so without further ado, here is my conversation with the Chief Marketing Communications Officer at Pheasants Forever and a bunch of other things that he does, Bob St. Pierre. Bob, hey, welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> Absolutely, Tony. It's a pleasure to uh, to join you for this podcast. On my on my uh, home turf, I've been on your radio show a few times, and so I, uh, you know, it's it's nice to be able to return the favor and have you on here. You've been doing that radio show for since 2008 is that right <laughs> uh yeah it's uh i can, i always uh, measure measure things like this in lifespan of my dogs and oh, um yeah. i started doing k-fan when trammel my oldest pup was one year old so 2008 is correct it it's been a long time and, and i've made a grand total of 275 dollars during that time through that k-fan <laughs> project <laughs> <laughs> so so you get the idea it's a, it's purely um an opportunity to get the the message of pheasants forever out there and, and obviously yeah. there's a um it does wonders you know for my own personal resume you know it, it, yeah. most folks know me from k-fan in the twin cities then from pheasants forever or sportsman for the boundary waters or, or any anything else so it's it's been a, a really really beneficial um volunteer opportunity so if it's wait if it's volunteer then how do you score the 275 bucks <laughs> um i i got paid on two occasions hundred dollars uh when the captain who is retired and never misses the show but he i i hosted once um, so I'm the co-host captain Billy uh -huh. Hildebrand is the host. The captain gets paid. Um, okay. but the captain had to skip once for, um, a wedding and one other time for graduation. So I made 200 bucks. Um, well, 100 bucks each of those times. And I made, and I made the $75 that, and this is, this is hilarious. Um, I've done the captain and I have done only a limited number of, kind of personal appearances as radio personalities. Uh -huh. um, and and I, I got paid to go for a special appearance, $75 to Duluth Trading Company in Woodbury because they, they were <laughs> unveiling a new line of uh, ballroom underwear. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know. I, I really oh don't know how I ended up as their target market for that, but uh so that that explains in full detail the two hundred and seventy five dollars wow. I've made wow. through KFan. That is amazing. Uh, I mean, I would love to go deeper into your uh, <laughs> sponsorship by yeah. underwear, but um, man, that's quite a volunteer deal because it's uh, it's early, man, and it's on <laughs> Saturday. 
Yeah, it um, it keeps me out of trouble on Friday night. I'll tell you that. I bet. Uh, I bet. I, I, the alarm clock goes off at four thirty a.m. every Saturday. Mm. Um, I've never been late. Knock on wood. Rain, snow, shine, snowstorm, ice mm-hmm. storm. Um, so we're live uh, six a.m. to eight a.m. every Saturday, and um, yeah, it's it's volunteer. But um, like I said, it's it's really been powerful uh for pheasants forever i I, in particular i think about uh when national pheasant fest and quail classic comes to the twin cities you know and i have the opportunity to bring guests on that are going to be featured components of the wild game cooking stage or the public lands pavilion and and give a you know i have a platform to you know, in partnership with Billy, and you know, because Billy's ultimately the host and, and makes mm-hmm. the calls, but I, I can line up guests that help tell the Pheasants Forever story through you know whether that's Pheasant Fest or there's a new CRP sign up or anything going on in the world of conservation. It's a tremendous platform on hundred thousand watt radio. Um, yeah. That's you know the biggest it's the biggest radio station in the upper Midwest. And you think about where pheasant country is mm-hmm. and where K fans radio network overlaps. And that's the Dakotas, Northern Iowa, Western Wisconsin, all of Minnesota. I mean, it's, it, it couldn't have been a more perfect match to where we're trying to influence uh, land management decisions. So it's, it's been mm-hmm. really beneficial. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I've been in, I've been in Eastern South Dakota pheasant hunting and been able to pick up the show. So it, it definitely has a big reach. Um, and you know, it's one of the last outdoors radio shows left in the twin cities and probably anywhere, to be honest. Yeah. Both radio and print you, you know, I've, I started with pheasants forever in January of 2003 so, you know, almost two decades. And I, you know, when I started, um, particularly in print, you know, the, the Des Moines Register, Omaha World Herald, mm-hmm. Chicago's, everybody in major market newspaper had an outdoors editor. And mm-hmm. many of them had an outdoors editor and a kind of a beat reporter. And now you look across the country for radio and for print and you know it's it's probably 90% gone from the the yeah. coverage that was there 20 years ago and and i i look at the twin cities as kind of the shining example of what's left and as you mentioned there's yeah. there's been a lot of outdoor shows that that have unfortunately gone away in the last say 5 years but thankfully we have you know, and uh, one of the the single best outdoors editors in the country, and Dennis Anderson writing at the Star Tribune. Uh, mm-hmm. We got Tony Kennedy at the Star Tribune. Bob Timmons. I mean, the Star Tribune is world class when it comes to outdoors coverage. And then you add in what Rob Driesline and in 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 the outdoor mm-hmm. news um, weekly publications are doing, uh, and then you, you you take a look at. Fan Outdoors and the Four Outdoorsmen radio show and, and um, you know, what the folks at The Flush and Travis Frank and Ron Shera and, and you, it, while, while the Twin Cities may not have what we had, you know, five, ten years ago for outdoor coverage, it, it just, it is so different comp- in a better way 
than yeah. Omaha, Chicago, De- Des Moines. I mean, we had National Pheasant Fest in Chicago just a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's there's there's not only a lack of people that cover the outdoors, there's there's a lack of interest and a fear. You know, mm-hmm. when you when you start talking about inner city Chicago based media, yeah, like I couldn't get any coverage for conservation yeah. with Chicago television station. I mean, it just they they see Blaze Orange and it just it strikes fear. And it's that's a mm-hmm. really sad testament to where we are. Yeah, man, I, I, I totally know what you're talking about. And I've, uh, I have those same battles in, you know, my world of trying to combine, um, you know, people in the religious Christian church world sometimes to think about hunting and that, yeah, there's a real reluctance. Um, well, speaking of blaze orange and pheasant fest, first of all, I just want to say, I mean, for my, just for me, if you're, if you're just thinking of me, just have pheasant fest in the twin cities every year <laughs> and don't stop moving it around. But yeah. I mean, it, it's so hard to find you at pheasant fest, Bob. I don't know how anybody ever finds you except that of course you wear a blaze orange sport coat <laughs> for the entire run of the deal. Yeah. I, I have a few things that, uh, that have become sort of natural fits for me. And, and I'm, I may be the only person in the world that uh, wears a blaze orange sport coat. But, um, <laughs> and yeah, wears pheasant, it proudly, not as like, because yeah, you lost I've, a bet or something. <laughs> <laughs> I've tried to, you know, tried to wear a cowboy hat and I just look like Woody from Toy Story. Oh, but, yeah. uh, but at least I could pull off a blaze orange, blaze orange sport coat. But yeah, you know, you're not... By far, you're not the first person that uh, has said, "Let's just have Pheasant Fest in the Twin Cities every year." And and from a you know market that we have the most members, and if we just simply, if the singular goal was to generate revenue through Pheasant Fest, then it would be it would be in the Twin Cities every single year. But that event, National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic, and it's important for me to to mention the quail side. And, yeah. You know, it really is uh, an event that creates a platform for us to tell our story, our conservation message in a different market that wouldn't exist if we didn't bring a $4 million economic impact to that market. Yeah, yeah. So totally. moving it uh, moving it around the country is critically important. Although, you know, you can pretty much mark your, mark your calendar. It'll be in the Twin Cities every three years just because... Yeah. You know, we need to play home games for all sorts of reasons, um, yeah. financially, but then also it's it's a big lift to to put an event on like that because our our business model is not events marketing, right? Our business model yeah. is ha- conservation. So, um, yeah, moving it to the Twin Cities every couple of years is important. Um, hey, I I want to go pretty deep in a couple different directions, bird hunting and um and the boundary waters. But before we get to that, we should probably cover our shared love of baseball. Although <laughs> for different teams, I got to tell you, man, um, the, your tigers, I thought they were going to kill Ron Gardenhire. He looked worse yeah. and worse. That guy, he, he was putting on weight. He was mm. getting tossed out of games that the tigers were down by eight runs. He, I, he quit, you know, uh, obviously, before the season was even over, he just said, "This is it. I'm done." And I bet his wife said to him, "You are going to kill yourself if you keep coaching this team, man." Yeah, you're right. He uh, 
he's he 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 was sick i mean he he has admitted that uh that he was getting sick and um yeah it's been a <laughs> it's been a tough let's say eight years being a tigers fan we we yeah. had a, a good window there and i think about 06 to 2012 when we were in a couple of world series and we had everything except for a closing a closer <laughs> you know we yeah. had verlander and scherzer and uh you know we we had a starting rotation that was unmatched and then you had miguel cabrera and uh in the middle of that lineup uh, but we in both cases we just had a closer that was flammable in the bad way. Yeah, yeah didn't that's no a, good. <laughs> didn't have didn't have a fireman's arm. Had uh, just threw gasoline on the fire. But uh-huh. yeah, I grew up. Uh, I grew up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and mm-hmm. my first uh, my first love were were the Detroit Tigers. And in fact, my oldest pup, uh, Trammel is named after my my childhood idol Alan Trammell and mm-hmm. I have a real real deep love of baseball. Yeah, me too. I um I'm actually a a baseball umpire in the summer as a little bit of a side hustle and because I love the game so much and I think you live up there in White Bear Lake, don't you around the PF offices? I do. Uh, yep. Yeah, yep. well, Just- I coached last year I co- I I mean I umpired the uh White Bear Township town team a couple times and uh, a guy you've already mentioned, Bob Timmons, the outdoors editor of the Star Tribune lives up there and he came and sat in the parking lot and had a couple beers with me after the game. So I'll have to let you know if I, if I ever umpire up there in White Bear next year, <laughs> this coming summer. That'd be great. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, how, how'd you make that jump? Okay. So you're in Michigan. You, you ended up mm-hmm. at St. Cloud State University. So yep. you ended up here in Minnesota and then went to work for the St. Saint Paul Saints. Is that right? Yep. Yep. So um, uh, it's kind of uh, a lot of things in my life have happened just sort of being at the right place at the right time and taking advantage of the opportunities. Um, so I ended up um, I, I, growing up in, in Michigan, I wanted to be a Wolverine. Uh, I was mm. dead set on going to the University of Michigan. And uh, I don't know if you remember this, but when you sit down to take your ACT, you have to fill out one of the first questions is what three universities do you want your scores sent to? And I didn't know that that was part of the test when I sat down and uh-huh. it's like, well, okay, it's circled the bubble University of Michigan. And then it's like, I don't know where else. I'm like, well, like two nights before I had been to a Northern Michigan university, St. Cloud state hockey game. I was mm. like, well, I, I, I know I'm going to the university of Michigan. So I circled St. Cloud state and NMU as the other two schools <laughs> took the test. I did, I did well. And, uh, about two weeks after I got my scores, I got a call from St. Cloud state, um, admissions office asking me, um, uh, if I would accept a full ride to, to oh, go wow. to St. Cloud. And, uh, you know, my first question is, uh, help help me, what what state is St. Cloud State in? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, a couple weeks after that, I, I went to St. Cloud and, and toured it. And, you know, it, and my family, you know, growing up in the UP is very middle class. And mm-hmm. the idea of a full ride um, to get a degree uh, was just a 
a perfect situation. So I jumped at it. I, I got admitted into the honors programs. I actually got two degrees and I'm, I'm a hair away from a teaching certificate and I did it in four years with wow. no debt. Um, so as I'm going through college, uh, January of my senior year, uh, I, my anticipation was I was going to go work for an ad agency like Fallon or um, mm-hmm. Martin Williams or some something like that down here in the Twin Cities. And one, my, one of my professors in, in mass communications was a St. Paul Saints season ticket holder and brought Mike Vec, uh, a part owner of the St. Paul Saints, yeah. to famous um, famous guy. Yeah, yeah. Brought brought him to um, class as a guest speaker. And he started talking about marketing, advertising, PR for a baseball team. And, and for whatever reason, I, you know, this is, so this is uh, January of 1992. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I'm sorry, January of 1996. Um, so it's my senior year. And, you know, I'm looking for a job and I just, it never occurred to me, the, the business side of baseball, that there's all these front office opportunities until he starts talking about it and, you know, his, his background with the White Sox and his dad's background, he was Bill Vec, who's in the hall of fame and disco night. Yeah. Disco demolition night, which happened to be (laughs) the Detroit Tigers. Oh, Um, really? Okay. So, well, so for listeners that may not know what disco demolition night is, Mike Vec, who's working in marketing for the Chicago White Sox. It's 1979. Um, and it's the end of the disco era. And Mike comes up with this promotion to have disco demolition between games of a doubleheader um, <laughs> with the White Sox. Bring your disco records and the White Sox will literally blow them up on the field didn't Between he put a games. dumpster? I'd like put a dumpster in the center yep. field or something. To so, the- <laughs> something like that. But where the story went awry, or where the promotion went awry, because people came out, right? Well, they yeah. blow these up, and uh, basically a riot ensues. And and wasn't there uh, a big crater in the middle of center field too? <laughs> think, like, yeah, people are all over the field, and it is. I I think it was the first time. In Major League Baseball history, a team actually had to forfeit a loss um, that wasn't, you know, had nothing to do with weather or anything. I mean, it it was a forfeit because of a a marketing promotion. And uh, uh, the Tigers got a win that year, which which was remarkable in 1979. But that essentially blacklisted. Mike out of Major League Baseball, and then he ended up going into the minors, working in the minors. In 1993, he and Marv Goldklang, who was uh, who who is a minority owner of the New York Yankees, um, basically the second family behind Steinbrenner in Yankee ownership, mm-hmm. and um, a whole group of other people, a small, relatively small group, um, including Bill Murray the actor by team in St. Paul, 1993 and becomes the St. Paul saints. Mm-hmm. And Mike talks about this story and how, you know, the saints are just this, this darling of the minor league. It's independent baseball. They're not affiliated with any major league team. There's no big paying salaries. It's just this, this marketing promotion 
middle class, small ticket price gem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mike got done talking to that class at St. Cloud State for his professor who is a season ticket holder. And the, you know, the bell rings and the class gets up and starts walking out. And I'm looking around like, this is amazing. I, you know, so I went up to Mike. I'm the only one left. I'm like, I want your job. Hmm. How do I get it? And he might just kind of giggled at me and we, we had a nice conversation. And the following week I, I drove down to St. Paul and interviewed with Bill Fanning, mm. who at the, was the general manager of the saints at the time. And, um, I'm, I, I earned an internship for the, um, summer of 1996, uh, working for the saints. So I graduated and I had already had two internships, but, so the Saints was my third internship. I was ready to make some money, make yeah, a living. But and you thought I should get into AM radio or FM AM radio uh, sports shows for right, big money, right? Right. <laughs> Outdoor. But, well, you but probably you, yeah. Go ahead. Well, so so I jumped at it, right? So in yeah. summer of '96, that's the year the Saints had Daryl Strawberry play mm-hmm. for a short time, Jack Morris, and. Um, kind of, I, I earned a job out of it after the internship and spent seven years um, working oh, my way awesome. up to um, assistant GM uh, by by 2002. Okay, you get this question all the time, I'm sure, but just give us a little insight into Bill Murray because hmm. from from all appearances, he seems like a great guy. Yeah, you know, I, I would say uh, the movie Groundhog's Day. Uh-huh. Was was not a stretch for Bill. Okay. Um, <laughs> so he, you know, it's it's funny. He he's really genuinely nice guy. We'd see him probably once a season. He would come in for a long weekend with his kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd, we normally um, we would after the Sunday day game, uh, the entire front office staff, Bill, his family, and our families would get together and play. We kind of, we put a keg at the first base uh, coach's box and play a family team uh, game of baseball. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, it was, it was real. And the other, one of the undervalued components of working for a sports team is, you know, that the off days, we generally had concerts, um, you know, a few concerts sure. throughout the summer there. And the same is true at Target Field and other places. But, you know, so we had Prince and Bob Dylan and Soul Asylum and and Warp Tour. And, and so I, I got, you know, and generally as the assistant GM, I was the overnight person making sure that the stage got moved in and, and the stage lights and all that got moved out. And I, mm-hmm. I got the opportunity to meet all sorts of really neat artists and performers um, through that component of the, of the job as well. So it was really a, you know, I went from college at St. Clouds to seven seasons with the saints. And it was, it was like my PhD uh, learning in, in, in marketing because part of it was selling advertising outfield billboards, logo baseball night, whoopee cushion day, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, program ads, Part of it was selling tickets, customer service, marketing the team. I was the PR person. And ultimately that through the, through the saints is how I met everybody in twin cities radio, which ultimately, so I, there was a leap there, uh, 2002, 
where I made the transition to Pheasants Forever, but that connections I had in radio opened the opportunity for me to get on with KFAN um, mm-hmm. and start doing the outdoor show. They're, well, the hardest just, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say for people who aren't from, you know, Minnesota, the, the St. Saint Paul Saints are are famous and notorious for uh, maybe not disco demolition night, but similarly <laughs> creative uh, marketing efforts. And it's always su- even, I mean, now they're going to be a twins minor league franchise, which if you ask me has been a long time coming and is great news, I think for both teams and for baseball in the twin cities. But when they were an independent team, the games, you know, as far as the fans were concerned, it, the win-loss record didn't really matter. Nobody was like hanging on the edge of their seats if they were going to win the Northern League or whatever for the year. But you'd go to the game because of the fun promotion nights and you know the pig bringing the balls to the umpires and the n- nun giving chair massage and stuff like that, sitting in the hot tub and outfields. And and I will say that I um, I umpired the championship game of. There was kind of a rogue high school tournament last summer after the high school baseball season was canceled, and they um, uh, they put together like an independent league of high school seniors. It was basically all-star teams from around the state, and I uh, umped the plate uh, for the championship game of that uh, tournament last summer at the Saints' new stadium, and it was my first time being on the field there, and what a great stadium and a very fun place for a baseball game. Yeah, they, they did a wonderful job squeezing that into downtown St. Paul yeah. right outside the farmer's yeah. market. Uh, you know, I honestly, I, I miss a bit of the charm that was Midway Stadium and in the railroad sure, tracks. And, um, but I also have seven years of sentimentality there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I brought enough view to see that it's just a, a gorgeous park um, that yeah. they've been able to upgrade to. So did you uh, did you grow up hunting? Was that something you were passionate about as a kid? Yeah, you bet. I I, I grew up in a family of um, of hunters and anglers on both sides of my family. Very very deep. Um, all all my grandparents, uncles, aunts, uh, my dad, and my mom. You know, I give equal credit to my mom um, in teaching me how to to hunt and fish. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I grew up in in the UP about seven miles outside of the town of Escanaba. And Escanaba is a town of about 13,000 people, so not not exactly giant. Uh, and, but seven miles out, um, you know, I it, it was a utopic life where I'd get home from school. I'd, I would grab the shotgun or the fishing rod and I literally could be out the door and hunting grouse, you know, 15 steps from my backyard. Um, it was mm-hmm. a, a, probably a two mile bike ride to, to go to the Ford river and fish for bass. Um, actually the closest we, there's a little brook trout stream about, um, Oh, probably 500 yards from the house too. So yeah, I, I deer hunted, Grouse hunted, turkey hunted, and fished. Um, and we have a pond in our backyard. And we lived in in the woods, really. But there was this pond, and ducks and geese would come flying through there and migration. And um, we were able to 
shoot a couple ducks and geese and squirrels and rabbits mm. and right out the backyard. So it was really, really a perfect place to grow up. That's awesome. Did now were you when you left baseball? I know that. I mean, I think that don't you every year kind of uh, commemorate on social media when you left the baseball world and moved to yeah. pheasants forever. Yeah, that was a that was a pretty challenging decision for me. So it was um, uh, the December of two thousand and two. I you know made the decision that seven years in the minors, it was time to take the next career step for me. And seven years in the minors front office is is long for most most folks, mm-hmm. you know. So I applied for a number of um, positions and. One opportunity was to, at that time, Mike Vec was going to go work for Dave Dombrowski, uh, who was the new president of the Detroit Tigers. And Mike was going to be the vice president of marketing. So I had an opportunity to join Mike um, in Detroit in his marketing team with the Tigers, my childhood team. Or I had, uh, I had met Howard Vincent and Joe Dugan over the course of a couple years who uh, president, CEO, and vice president uh, of, of marketing and, and development for Pheasants Forever um, at the time. So I had this massive um, internal struggle. Do I stay mm-hmm. on the the path with the Tigers and Mike or um, switch gears a bit, stay in the Twin Cities and um, uh, work in conservation? And uh, ultimately, moving to Detroit, <laughs> ended up being a negative and mm-hmm. working in conservation, uh, something I was deeply passionate about as a kid that grew up um, bird hunting in particular and a dog lover uh, as well. Uh, that pulled me to stay in the Twin Cities and take the take the position of um, uh, director of marketing and communications um, in two th- January 6th. 2003 is when I started at Pheasants Forever. Mm. And it was six days before the very first ever National Pheasant Fest. Oh, um, no kidding. So, yeah, yeah, I went uh, went from the off-season, baseball off-season, right into the fire. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it was, uh, it, but it was, it was the right, the right move. I mean, I've had other sports opportunities over the years to ask to interview or, or, or but it's, it's, it's 100% been the right decision for me to go with pheasants forever and quail forever. I feel uh, incredibly proud that what I do on a daily basis means so much more than, you know, creating a widget. It's, um, it's leaving a legacy on the landscape for something that is a part of who I am. Uh, it's, it's more of a lifestyle than a job Mm -hmm. and, um, it's, it's incredibly gratifying as a result. Yeah, now I have I have such huge admiration for PF, both for its you know the the way it was founded, how it was founded, and and I've um, as kind of an adult convert to hunting, you know, I've I've spent some time researching different conservation organizations, and I've joined uh, pretty much every one of them, you know, all the national ones, and some of them then I don't rejoin and others I do, you know, and PF is one that I join every single, you know, I, I keep my membership up every single year. 
because I just think what you what you all are doing there is great. And I, I mean, I, I I know you would never disparage any other conservation organization, but I, you know, I talk to people in this industry too, and everyone's kind of like, oh yeah, don't give your money to that organization. Or don't <laughs> give your money to like that one's bloated with high paid executives. That one spends all their money just lobbying in Washington. Like, but everybody says, oh, but PF, you know, like they, their money goes into the land, into conservation, into habitat. Um, So what do you think the, um, what's the special sauce at Pheasants Forever? Because here's the other thing I would say to that, especially to listeners who, you know, I actually thought going into this, going into this, recording this interview, like I need to not, uh, talk about pheasant hunting after talking to Bob for a couple episodes because I, and we'll get into this, but I am so insanely crazy about pheasant hunting right now. <laughs> I, I mean, I can't stop talking about it and I need to talk about other things too, but, but, but pheasant hunting isn't, um, it's not like a national, it, it's not like a national, uh, uh, outdoors activity. Like, bass fishing is or like mm. turkey or whitetail deer hunting. I mean, whitetail might not be national, but it's darn close. You know, mm-hmm. it, it it's almost like you're the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, but everybody loves PF. And mm. so that, I guess that's how, how do you, how do you take a kind of a re what's, what's basically a regional hunting species, a game species and make it into such a powerful national organization. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for the kind words and thanks for um, the, the continuing to renew your membership. Uh, it's critically important to organizations like ours. Um, special sauce. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I, I'd boil it down into to three buckets. Um, so the first bucket I would put our, and the first bucket has three components to it. Um, our model, which is different from every other nonprofit conservation organization. And again, that's not to disparage any others, but there's magic in our model. And that model is uh, local volunteers mm-hmm. when they hold a banquet in Stillwater, Minnesota, and they raise $25,000, they send $35 per member to headquarters in St. Paul to fulfill the membership. You know, so we can produce a magazine mm-hmm. and a vehicle decal. And, but the the vast majority of that $25,000 that they locally fundraise, they have a 100%, those local volunteers have 100% control of the dollars they raise locally. Wow. So it allows them, those local volunteer chapter leaders, to do habitat projects, youth events. Um, they, they basically get to choose their own adventure. And, and that's incredibly powerful when you think about volunteerism in America. And that I credit that to, you know, Dennis Anderson and Jeff Finden and Bob Larson, the, the founders. And it's yes, it's the same Dennis Anderson that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. With uh, the Star Tribune. Dennis, Dennis is the the spark that led to the creation of Pheasants Forever. He wrote a, a newspaper article that if you trace the beginnings of Pheasants Forever, it started with Dennis's catalyst of that story. Yeah, so, I listened I listened to your episode of your podcast 
with Dennis t- uh, recounting those early, you know, that very first, th- people were just like sending him money in the yeah. mail because yeah. of his column in the newspaper. He's like, well, what am I going to do with this money? I need to like <laughs> start a nonprofit to deposit these checks somewhere. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, It, it, it really, and it, it, that, thank you for that shout out because if, I, I think I've recorded 105 episodes of On the Wing podcast. If I was going to tell somebody to listen to one episode to get a flavor of the, the program, go back and listen to the Dennis Anderson story. I, I don't remember what number it is. It, it was early on, maybe, you know, episode 13 or so. But um, that Dennis's story about the creation of Pheasants Forever it was just pure magic. And, yeah. and the model is purely the, the secret sauce. And, mm. and that model does two things that I mentioned. There's three buckets, and, but there's three things within the first bucket. So the model, um, but in that, that really inspires the volunteers. So that's the other piece that we have just, all the, all the organizations will tell you they, they have the best volunteers in the world and, and, they're, and they're terrific, right? No matter if it's rough grouse society or backcountry hunters and anglers, volunteerism is um, so critically important to conservation, but I'll hold our volunteers up above all others. I mean, that the, they're empowered to get their fingernails dirty and plant mm-hmm. habitat to teach kids conservation or the, the art of wing shooting or dog training. They're just that magic link between they're raising their money and actually doing something with that money to fulfill the mission is, is pure gold. And the last mm-hmm. thing within that first bucket is the, our, our fiscal responsibility since 1982, this is in a one year anomaly since 1982 out of every single dollar we raise, whether it's corporate sponsor driven, membership driven grants, you name it. 90 cents on the dollar has hit mm. our mission since 1982. That's, that is a statistic that I am in, I mean, that, 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 that's unrivaled. It's just yeah. so, so incredibly proud of that. So uh, not to get too long winded. So that's number one. Number two um, th- thing that's really magical is we're pheasants forever, but we're also quail forever. So when you think about when we started Quail Forever in 2005, there were a lot of folks in Montana and North Dakota, well north of the Quail Range, that are kind of scratching their heads saying, you know, we got all kinds of problems in Pheasant Range. Why is the organization thinning itself out and spending time in Georgia and in Texas and in New Mexico on Quail? This is not right. Well, fast forward to today. And now our members can see what Quail Forever did for the depth and breadth of the organization. Now, when we go talk about the federal farm bill and CRP policy, they they understand that when we walk into a senator's office in in Georgia, talk about the farm bill, we're relevant because of Quail Forever. We're relevant. We're relevant nationwide on the farm bill because of the combination of pheasants and quail, because there's a, there's a line there in the country where it's, I term it the mixed bag States, Kansas, Mm -hmm. Nebraska, where pheasants and quail both live. But for the most part, pheasants are Kansas North to the border and quail are Kansas South and all the way West. 
And then you add what we're doing with sage grouse and lesser prairie chickens. And, and we really are um, a national, the national upland grassland prairie habitat organization. There's nobody that fills that niche like we do. And so the last, the last bucket that I, I think is really unique to us is the combination of public and private conservation. So mm-hmm. on one hand, we're really well known as the CRP organization, the organization that works on the farm bill for the conservation reserve program. And we have 270 biologists that are pheasants forever, quail forever employees that work in USDA offices to mm-hmm. talk to farmers and ranchers about conservation. So there's a major private lands conservation component of our organization. But on the other side, we're a public land creator. We Mm -hmm. buy land that we turn over to the state, like DNRs or the feds, like the US US Fish and Wildlife Service. And those lands become WMAs or WPAs. We've purchased more than 200,000 acres that are now open to the public as WMAs or WPAs. And then there's an intersection there where private land and public land meet and that's walk-in programs. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the plots program in North Dakota or Weehaw in Kansas where our biologists help enroll private lands conservation, say in Kansas, right in CRP program. But then we also, and help, open it up to public hunting through farm bill legislation and through uh, relationships with, with states. So there's a public land, there's a private land, and then there's the amalgamation that lives between. So there's, there's a couple of, well, there's really those three things that separate us in the conservation landscape from so many of the other groups. Yeah, I, I've taken advantage of all three of those last ones, even this season. I mean, the, I, I hunted public land in Minnesota that was acquired by PF, you know, it's got the sign right there at the parking area. And then I did, you know, private walk-in land. And then I was, uh, some of the public or private land that I hunt in South Dakota, through your help, got in touch with uh, one of those biologists who works you know, in a state office, but a PF biologist who works in a state office in South Dakota. And he came out and walked the land with us for a whole day while we hunted. And he's, you know, in the next week or so, he's going to get us a plan for planting, you know, more habitat um, on some of these private spots that we hunt that because there's a a farmer in I mean, a, a businessman in St. Paul with whom I hunt and he owns some farms in South Dakota and he loves to hunt. So he wants, yeah. you know, he, he wants more habitat and we're able, it was just, you know, one phone call and we got a biologist walking around with us telling us what to do. So that's, that's a pretty great benefit, you know. <laughs> and if any of your listeners ever have the opportunity to hunt with a biologist, Run at that opportunity as fast as you can because it you learn so much when you're walking a field with a mm-hmm. biologist about habitat, different species, and you start to figure you start to develop patterns and trends where you find birds. It's a it's yeah. a really really um, it, that's a that's a hunting hack for for listeners. 
Well, now, okay, I, you know, I meet people who work for conservation organizations uh, or for the DNR or whatever, and they're always like, you know, they, they get uh, people say, oh, that's what an awesome job. You get paid to hunt. And they're almost <laughs> always say, you'd be surprised. I barely ever get to hunt. Like it's, it's, uh, I've. Uh, I've even heard people from your, you know, organization say that. I don't think that's true about you. However, I get the <laughs> impression that you're not one of those guys who works for a conservation organization and never gets to hunt. I think you get to hunt a lot. In fact, this PF biologist, he didn't carry a, He didn't carry a gun. I mean, we said, "Oh, yeah. come on, hunt. You can hunt with us." And he's like, "Well, I mean, PF would." PF would be fine with it, but the state agency that I work with and, you know, I'm actually work out of a government office in South Dakota. And so I sh shouldn't carry a firearm. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> sure. I said, I said, I think Bob hunts on the job. <laughs> He's like, oh yeah, Bob hunts on the job for sure. <laughs> so uh, you're a passionate, uh, I'd love to hear you talk about why why you're so passionate about upland bird hunting aside mm -hmm. from it being your job i know you're a dog lover mm -hmm. um but you're obviously a very passionate hunter and also <laughs> wonder if there's you know if there are any uh, you know one of the things we explore on this podcast is deeper meaning some people find mm -hmm. real spiritual connection in in their outdoor endeavors and i'm wondering if you know that it scratches any of those itches for sure. you sure sure so I'll, I, well, I'll have to clarify. I don't, I don't get paid to hunt. <laughs> <laughs> I know you don't. It's just a nice uh, but, little side benefit. <laughs> no, no, there, there are some opportunities that definitely yeah. occur, uh, whether that's a rooster road trip or uh -huh. taking a, the media out on a hunt and, and it, you know, demonstrating the co connection between public access and, and they, but nevertheless, you're, you're right. Um, uh, this is a lifestyle for me. Um, and that's a combination of, of life situation and, and what I'm passionate about. Um, so I, my wife and I have never been able to, um, have children. We just, we have an, a fertility issue that, um, kind of such is life that happens mm -hmm. with a lot of folks. So, mm -hmm. so that, uh, on the plus side of that is I don't have a whole heck of a lot of responsibilities on the weekends after, well, after I get done with radio. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but a lot of times I could call in from uh, wherever I am in the fall and give my, my bird hunting report on the radio. But, yeah. but my weekends, you know, September through January, um, you know, my wife is incredibly, um, relaxed about our, our lifestyle. And, you know, I, I can load up the dogs, um, our kiddos and, and go wherever the, the whim takes me. Uh, generally I have licenses in my pocket for eight States in an average year. And, um, I, I travel with, with the dogs and, uh, dogs, sleep in the bed with us and sleep in the hotels and, and they got to run anyway. So I might yep. as well run them, exercise them with a shotgun. So, so that, yeah, I absolutely, um, I hunt every weekend and, you know, whether that's quail, um, prairie grouse, pheasants, rough grouse. Um, I, I, I really haven't deer hunted much since, um, since I left college. Um, 
And when I started getting my own dogs, the idea of going into a tree stand, which I loved, I love yeah. bow hunting and I love eating venison. Uh, venison to me is the best wild game um, meat there is. It's best meat there is, period. Um, but I thoroughly am over the moon in love with hunting behind a pointing dog and um, seeing what will arise in front of that dog. And I chased that thrill um, from the beginning of September till the end of the season when I can't anymore. Mm. And to answer your question about deeper meaning, you know, I, I grew up, um, I grew up in a Catholic family. I went to Catholic grade school. Um, my wife uh, grew up in a Lutheran family. Her, her father was a Lutheran minister for much of his life. And so there's, pretty deep religious connections, but I'm not a, I wouldn't consider myself a real religious traditional church going Mm -hmm. person. But I I remember kind of a seminal moment for me was reading um, Walden, um, Henry David Thoreau. And is, and I I think um, the connection I feel is in one of my degrees, one of my degrees is in creative writing, literature, and so I, the connection between Walden and um, nature and uh, faith does all wrap around into the outdoors for me. Mm-hmm. I, I see beauty and reverence and that that spiritual being in the outdoors. Mm-hmm. And you know, I I don't know if that is the definition of transcendentalism but that's kind of what <laughs> that's kind of what I I um I, I put my faith in that there's a higher power that's awesome that's awesome I'd love for you to tell me about um I mean I, I something happened man for me this year I went to South Dakota five times for pheasants and I hunted public land in Minnesota several times as well um something really clicked for me this year in pheasant hunting. Like all the pieces fell into place. I, my dog was just fantastic. Uh, I just seemed to, you know, you know, you go pheasant hunting and um, some guys are in the right spot at the right time (laughs) for a whole weekend. And you're like, golly, you know, like we saw a lot of birds this weekend, but they all seem to flush right in front of this one, you know, one hunter or whatever, or you have a day like that, but then the next day, all the birds are on the other edge of the CRP and the, the other, another person gets shooting or whatever. And I just had one of those seasons where it was like, I barely had a day where I didn't limit. Um, and I just had tons of birds and I was shooting really well and everything like that. And I wonder if you've, you know, as, as you've become, as you've become more, um, you say you pursue this passion every single weekend. Are you getting better at it? Is it are, are you, like, what kind of things are you learning? I guess, not just about hunting, but even about your dogs and even about yourself in, in so let's, let's be honest, guys who are our age, middle-aged guys, you know, rarely have that, ability to really pursue a passion that robustly like you have. And like this year I have too. Mm -hmm. What have you learned about yourself in that? 
Uh, so you started the the question with um, a statement about your dog was fantastic. Mm-hmm. How how old is your dog right now? My dog's two and a half. This one, yeah, oh, and so, I too. It's funny, Bob. Go back to something you said uh, a while back. But I preached a sermon last Sunday at a church, a Lutheran church in Elk River, and I basically said, "I'm going to tell you my about my adult life in the in a tale of three dogs." And I measured yeah. out my adult life in the three yellow labs that I've owned. And yeah, now I'm on this third dog, Crosby, and he's two and a half. Yeah, because yeah, I. I do think that well, so two and a half. Your that dog, your your pup is coming in to yep. prime time. Yep. And to me, when you have a dog in prime, uh, it, there's just no substitute for how smart you are or how great the habitat. Is. I mean, if you have a dog in its prime, the dog is the secret weapon that's putting birds in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and your ability, you said, I believe you said it's, this is the third one. So you probably have shortened the learning curve to know where to put the pup in the field, how to enter yeah. the field and put that pup in even a better situation. Uh, so I think, you know, when it comes to bird hunting, I've learned more from my dogs than any person my, and that's not to slight wow. mom or dad or Billy or Matt or any of my great <laughs> hunting partners, yeah. but uh, Trammell, Izzy, Gitchy, and Esky have taught me more about bird hunting than any human being. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, that's probably connects to the, the previous question about, you know, the, you know, that religious experience, you know, where, where you can form a bond with a, a, a dog, another living being where you're teamed up together uh, to go in pursuit of, of something. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it, I, I just think that that's, there's joy in that when it all comes together and that's what keeps you coming back. And I, I see there's a, there seems to be a bit of an explosion in the art of falconry uh, through what I see, watch on social media as well. Yeah. And, and if you, if you take an added component and just think about this, you train a, a falcon or, or a hawk raptor, and then you're also training your bird dog and, and you think like your dog's on point and then you got this falcon in the air and then oh you flush and you flush a sharp tail, right? And this falcon stoops, which means it folds its wings and just dive bombs and, and, and your dog's on point still as this bird's flushing and the falcon hits the bird huh. and you as a human being are part of this amazing combination of a bird uh, and a dog and to put mm-hmm. food on the table. I mean, that to me is just, there. there's no amount of, um, intellectualness that can break that down without having a little bit of faith in there too, you know, yeah, it's just, yeah. it's, it's just pretty remarkable. So I, I guess I've learned over, over time um, to, to take a look at the bigger picture. The other thing that I, I haven't mentioned that important part of me is I'm a type one diabetic. Mm. Um, so I became uh, insulin dependent um, so I have juvenile diabetes, but I had adult onset. So okay. at twenty, at age twenty six, 
uh, became a diabetic and I have an insulin pump attached to me that's always dripping into to my body. I, I feel like RoboCop all the time because hmm. I've got these this medical device connected to me. But what that is a constant reminder is, you know, life is short and we all know that. Yeah. Yeah. But every single day I've got this tubing coming out of my stomach Hmm. and hooked on my belt. And, and when I'm hunting, I'm, my blood sugar is going up and down and down and down. And, and it's a constant reminder to just keep, life in perspective. And Mm. the thing that I cherish most about doing in my life is being out in that field with, with my pups. And that brings me pure happiness and pure joy and to savor that. So I I don't know if I've answered, you're probably asking a a little bit more about tips and tactics, but I guess I'd say slow down and and savor it. That's beautiful. I love it. And I think we have one more shared love that I want to ask you about before we go. And that is, um, we, we have one saint, we, we've beatified one person on this podcast and that is Saint Sigurd. Ah, yes. uh, and I know, I know that you have be, recently been gifted, um, uh, first, edi- some first editions of Sigurd Olson books signed, I believe. And, I'm a, just a huge, I never go to the Boundary Waters without one of, of Olson's books with me to read while I'm in the Boundary Waters every single time. It's just like part of my little, you know, religious thing. And he's a very spiritual writer and you have a great love for the Boundary Waters. So I'd love before we go to hear you, you know, tell us about your, your connection with Sigurd and the Boundary Waters. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love Sig's writing. I think he's, so drastically underappreciated. It, it's it's wonderful to see Aldo Leopold getting a, a bit of a resurgent wave in, yeah. in appreciation. And uh, I'll give full credit to Meat Eater and, and particularly Ben O'Brien, who's done uh, a lot to bring bring Aldo Leopold back at the forefront of people's minds. And and I think Sig is right there with Aldo. Um, the, the idea of wilderness and spirituality and, and, and what that means, just what the wilderness means for a healthy human mind and body that's prevalent across his books. Um, to me, I, I probably, well, I know I came to the Boundary Waters a bit unconventionally, um, and it relates back to KFAN. One of the, one of the nice perks about KFAN is that from time to time, uh, some of these more beautiful destinations in the upper Midwest um, buy an advertising package to bring the show for a live broadcast. Mm-hmm. So we've done that at Devil's Lake, North Dakota, and um, we did a show in Montana. Um, but we, we have a recurring show that happens every uh, late spring, early summer in, in Ely, Minnesota and at the doorstep to the Boundary Waters. So my first exposure into the Boundary Waters, was we arrived on a Thursday. We did a Thursday night KFAN broadcast, and then Friday morning we got up, Billy and I, Billy's son, Chad, and in, in, in a guide, and uh, we paddled into the Boundary Waters for a, a full day, sun up to sun da- da- down, fishing. 
So not your typical Boundary Waters trip, no no tent or anything, but just one day in and day out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we saw a moose and we caught just a, it, the, the smallmouth were on their beds and uh, it was top water fishing at its finest. And, you know, it was love at first sight. And we, we came back out, did a Saturday morning broadcast of, of KFAN and and that's become a every year ritual where we do this broadcast and go into the boundary waters. But, but it didn't stop there for me. Um, I've, I've just gone up back over and over and over whenever I could get mm-hmm. the opportunity. And my favorite time again is a bit unconventional. Um, my favorite time to go to the boundary waters is right now, um, January, February, and March. Really? I, I um, I go in with my my bird dogs that I love so much that hunting seasons are done and uh, there's so many folks well not so many but there's folks that'll pull the poke sleds right they'll the winter camp yeah. into the boundary waters and they'll they'll pull the sleds across a lake to a portage across another lake to a portage and that creates these natural uh, kind of ski trails cross-country ski trail. So mm-hmm. I go in and, and cross-country ski across a lake to a portage across the lake and go in, you know, five, eight, 10 miles with my dogs. And, oh, it's, wow. and, and, and you want to talk about being alone, Tony. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, you're yeah. in the boundary waters, uh, five miles in the middle of winter, you're alone. And yeah. you also, you know, you got to, obviously it, it's, it's a bit dangerous. You know, you yep. got to, something goes wrong and it's not a matter of, uh, um, inconvenience. It's, it's life or death, but, um, it, it's something that I just cherish. So I, uh, I was supposed to go in the middle of this polar vortex, but we've, uh, we pushed it back until the temperatures climb up over. Smart. That's smart. Yeah. Yeah. I was supposed to do some ice fishing last weekend. And I said to the guy, I'm like, um, I don't think so. He's like, my yeah. tent is really warm. <laughs> my ice fishing tent, my ice fishing tent is really warm. I'm like, not warm enough, bro. Not warm enough. <laughs> yeah. But it's supposed to warm up. Well, I, I share that love of the boundary waters. I've already got two trips planned for this summer and uh, yeah, it's an amazing place. I, that's, I really need to get up there and snowshoe in, in the winter and get deep in there. And, um, I, I, I'll, I'll use you as inspiration to do it. So, <laughs> well, and, and I have to just shout out one more component of that is, so I, I do volunteer my time, uh, for a terrific organization called Sportsman for the Boundary Waters, mm-hmm. um, which is another, it's a nonprofit organization that's, trying to protect the integrity of uh, the wilderness that is the Boundary Waters. And ultimately, there's um, the Twin Metals Mine, which has been fast-tracked during the last administration, White House administration, to to mine a half a mile outside of the Boundary Waters and to uh, copper um, sulfide ore copper mine. Mm -hmm. And every single one of these kinds of mines has been a toxic polluter in the mm. entire world. Mm-hmm. And, yep. you know, that happens here. It's a half mile outside the Boundary Waters. It just flows into the Boundary Waters, into yep. the Voyagers National Park, into Rainy River. I mean, it just keeps going. 
And so, so the, the purpose of uh, Sportsman for the Boundary Waters is, you know, we understand the need for mining. We understand the need for copper and, and nickel and all these minerals that we, you know, I'm not blind to the fact that we need these things in 2021, but this is not the right mine at, yeah. and it's not the right place for a mine. It's 1.1 million acres of the most beautiful land and water. It's, it's the Midwest's Yellowstone. Yeah. And absolutely. It, it cannot be jeopardized for this. Yeah, I agree, man. And that's another organization that I support is Sportsman for the Boundary Waters. And I would love for, you know, any listeners, if you're looking to spend some of your charitable dollars in 2021, you know, I'd say Pheasants Forever, Sportsman for the Boundary Waters, and Backcountry Hunters and Anglers are the three that are the top three on my list. So I know, Bob, you you support all those two. And hopefully we'll be back to having pint nights and and PF banquets here pretty soon, and we'll be able to see each other in person. I I think there's light at the end of the COVID tunnel, and uh, it'll be be nice for – for communities and, and conservation to gather together. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, thanks a million for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on your radio show a few times. And uh, I, I look forward to, you know, we'll have to get out there and hunt together sometime. That would really be... <laughs> It'd be a that, pleasure, that Tony. C- that would cement it. That would cement the, the friendship. So thanks, Bob. I really appreciate we, it. Really appreciate the opportunity. You bet. You bet.